I think it's important for people to just really get curious about their bodies, learn about their bodies. I think because of how sexism has kind of played into like centuries of how women and girls and people just were raised, there's this kind of like uh, mystery that people have around the female body, not understanding how it works, not understanding, you know, how it can change and morph and revert back to its state. Hi everyone, welcome to the Good Health Cafe, the place to learn more about how to navigate the healthcare system and how to take care of your health in plain language. I'm your host, Nikita, a health educator with a passion for making sure people understand the information that's shared with them. Our guest today is Ms. Shani Robertson. Shani is a registered midwife and public health consultant based in Ontario, Canada. Grab your warm drink and let's get to the episode. Hi, Shani. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe. Thanks for coming. Hi, Nikita. Thanks for having me on today. Could you please introduce yourself to the audience? Yeah, my name is Shani Robertson. I'm a registered midwife and I practice in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. I'm entering my third year of practice and uh, I'm a black identified uh, midwife originally from Barbados and immigrated to Canada. Very nice. Thank you. So tell us, Shani, what is a midwife? Midwife is a primary health care provider. Contrary to popular belief, I know back in the day, there used to be the lay midwives in the community, the granny midwives that we often hear about a lot. But in this day and age, in the year 2021, a midwife is a clinician. It's a medical profession. In this province of Ontario, and I'll speak to that, because midwives have different roles around the world. But specifically where I practice in Ontario, uh, a midwife is a primary healthcare provider. So we are experts in low risk and normal birth. We are experts in managing pregnancy, labor and delivery, and up to six weeks postpartum for both a pregnant person and their baby up until six weeks. So we have the six weeks to six weeks model Ontario that we use. A key piece, I mean, we'll talk about this when we get to the later on, I'm sure, but uh, a key thing to note is that a midwife is not a doula. That's also very key to know. A doula is a trained professional who provides emotional and labor support to pregnant people and their families and the prenatal birth and the postpartum, but they do not have clinical training. They don't have a license to practice. They cannot make clinical decisions. That is very much not what a midwife is, a trained healthcare professional. We go to university. We're licensed to practice. We're governed in Ontario. We're governed by the College of Midwives of Ontario, just like how physicians are governed by the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario. We have to be recertified every year, renew our license, keep up to date with continuing education. And we're also autonomous providers. So in other regions of the world, midwives have to work under a physician. But in Ontario, we work alongside physicians. We're very much well integrated into the healthcare system. And that is exactly what makes midwifery in Ontario such a great thing and keeps everything safe. That sounds great because I know a common question sometimes people have is are midwives safe? Do they only give birth and facilitate home births? But it's sounding from what you're saying so far like, yes, you guys are totally certified, completely safe. People need that. Yep. Yeah, so midwifery is safe. And what keeps it safe is that our training keeps us safe, mm-hmm. our continuing training, and then also that we're a regulated health profession, just like other ones. So there's a very clear scope of what midwives can and can't do in a clinical respect. And the Healthcare Act is sets that out. And our college very much sets that out. 
And so it's really clear as to what midwives can and can't do. And we very much always practice to our scope. We don't go outside of that. Because I do low risk and normal birth, I'm not going to be the one purporting that I can do a C-section. That's not something I can do. There are some midwives who are trained to be assists in a C-section, but we're not going to be the one doing the start of it and everything else. What keeps midwifery safe as well is that midwives are supported and integrated into a healthcare system. The government supports us and gives us the equipment that we need to do. As some people think midwives only do home births, that's not true. In Ontario, midwives do hospital births. They do births at the birth centers if they're in that area that midwives are in. And midwives also do home births if that's what the client chooses and if that's what's safe to do. So midwives, because we're experts in low-risk and normal birth and normal pregnancy, we also know when things are not gonna be normal. We can pick that up very quickly. And normal has a very wide range, right? And so we're comfortable with that wide range, but when we know we're starting to get out to the abnormal or something that we can't manage, we're gonna talk to our colleagues. And this is where the integration of the healthcare system is really important. Because we're linked to hospitals, we're also linked to obstetricians, our colleagues who are experts in higher risk pregnancies, and we refer them to refer for our, our clients to those obstetricians if that need arises. We have communications, we do consults with our colleagues if we think that something's becoming unsafe. And similarly with home birth, we also are screening people to figure out if they're going to be a good candidate for home birth or not. And we make recommendations. And I always tell people like midwives and just any clinician in general, we can only make recommendations. We can't force you to do something, but we always are screening and say like, I think you're still a good candidate for a home birth. And what keeps also home birth safe is that we have the equipment to manage emergencies, to manage normal birth outside of the hospital setting. So the Ontario government gives us and buys us equipment. The equivalent of what you'll find in a level one hospital in a smaller Ontario town is what you'll find a midwife has in several large bags in the back of their trunk on any given day, including the medications and, and treatments required. Okay, So you can administer drugs. Yes, we can administer drugs. So that's also a common misconception. I think uh, I jokingly tell people I don't just show up at a birth with a knitting needle and sage, <laughs> primarily because I don't know how to knit, which is something I think a lot of people think midwives know how to do. I am not one of those midwives who, who knows how to knit. But uh, yeah, having a knitting needle and sage is not. It's more like we're coming in with like a full Calvary and within 15 minutes, we can set up a room to look like a level one hospital and everything you would find in there, you'd have there. Oh, that's awesome. I'd love to see a picture of that. Why, Shani, did you pick midwifery? Uh, I think midwifery picked me in a way. So in terms of wanting to become a midwife, it's kind of a longer story. When I was four, my parents had these medical encyclopedias on the shelf and I'm flipping through them, right? Because back in the day, there was only one TV channel. It was often boring. So I'm flipping through the books and I see this picture of this baby being delivered and I, my mind just like exploded. And I said to my mother, I'm like, I want to do that. I'm like, I don't want to give birth, but I want to do that. I want to deliver a baby. And so she told me, oh, you want to be an obstetrician? I'm like, fine, whatever you want to call it, I want to be an obstetrician. And I also heard about, you know, midwives delivering, midwives delivered my parents. It was done in the home setting. Like, so I'd heard about that, but it seemed that I called it the donkey cart and kerosene lantern era of our, mm -hmm. of our the life cycle. So I was like, I didn't really think about it too much. and was kind of steered into the obstetrician room. 
But then as I got older and I was actually volunteering in a hospital in Toronto, there was a way that obstetricians practice in North America that I didn't kind of fit how I wanted to practice myself. There was kind of a depersonalized amount to it that you meet somebody you've never met before and you're delivering the baby. Then there's also like the nurse does the bulk of the labor management and then the OB comes in, delivers the baby and then just takes off. And so it just seemed very disjointed and not as personalized as I'd wanted to. And so I kind of was kind of turned off by that. Mm -hmm. And then also just only working in the home environment, the hospital environment also turned me off in this way because I was like, there has to be kind of some community-based way to do prenatal care and birth. And I wasn't familiar with Ontario midwifery until later on when my co-parent was got pregnant and wanted to have a midwife. And I was like, a midwife, what is this? And in the journey there between that moment and, and there, of course, I went and did my master's in public health at Emory and got a really good understanding of from a public health perspective of what good patient care looks like. It's very much focused on the patient, make sure that the care is tailored to their needs. And so then when I got introduced to Ontario midwifery, I quickly started realizing, and my mantra is like, if obstetrics and public health had a love child, it would be midwifery. Because midwifery really it believes in client-centered care, patient-centered care. It really strongly believes in making sure that people are informed about what's about to happen to them, being engaged in their healthcare process, being engaged in their pregnancy, taking ownership of their bodies. That's very much what midwifery is focused on. What I really love about midwifery, I practice what we call primary care midwifery. So very much, I have a small roster of clients every single month that are due to be delivered. And my goal is to be at each of their births. And so having a smaller case or load than other people would, that allows me to have a higher likelihood that I get to attend that person. And when I say attend, what I love about it is that I'm doing the management of the labor. And as long as everything's going normal, I'm doing the delivery of the baby. And there's also going to be a second midwife there who's going to be making sure the baby is transitioning to life really well. And I'm going to be doing home visits with those uh, clients of mine, with those patients of mine in the home setting, in the community setting, or wherever they're going to be and taking care of them in a, an environment that's really comfortable and safe for them. And I'm going to keep seeing them until they're six weeks, the baby's six weeks old. And that's when I discharge them. And the baby is then taken over by a family doctor or by a pediatrician, whatever um, the parent chooses and what's available in the society. What I love about midwifery is that you get to build a relationship with somebody as they go through this really precious journey of their life. You get to be the one to help catch their baby. And I say catch because some babies don't want to be delivered. They're just coming out on their own. And you're just literally just putting your hands on, you're catching them. What I love is just kind of being in the process of like just bringing life into the world. It's really remarkable and magical thing. I don't hold as many cute babies as people think. I do, but uh, yeah, but it's just the magic of like a baby being born. It's when you think of it on a biological level, you have two half cells coming together and we make a whole new human out of this. And also that human can come out and has 10 figures, 10 toes. Like it's pretty magical when you think about it. But yeah, it, there's just, there's a lot to love about midwifery as well. Yeah, the way you described it sounds really amazing. And I'm right there with you on community oriented, community focused. What do you yeah. mean you don't hold as many um, cute babies as people think? <laughs> so I think people think like as a midwife, like I always have a baby in my arm and it's not always that way. Like when you think about like the whole life cycle or the midwifery cycle, I have about 40 weeks of somebody being pregnant and then only six weeks of them being not pregnant mm -hmm. after giving birth. 
And then at the home visit, it's I see somebody usually day one after they give birth, day three, day five sometimes, then at two weeks of age, four weeks of age, and then the baby six weeks of age. So it's only like potentially six visits. And also that is kind of more of a clinical role. It's not just like, oh, cuddling a baby. It's like, is the baby's heart working? Yeah. Checking the eyes, weighing them, making sure they're feeding well, just examining them as well. Because they also are one of my clients, one of my patients as well. Really precious. One of the questions that I know people have and that I had, and I think you started answering it, is how does use of a midwife differ from traditional birth with an obstetrician? How do I differentiate? I think part of it is also just how midwifery is delivered Mm -hmm. in the sense of the continuity of care. So the way the majority of obstetricians work these days is that they have a roster, they have a schedule, they have their patients, their patients will be delivering at the hospital, they have privileges at, but it just will depend if on that given day, the obstetrician that you've been going to is going to actually be the obstetrician who delivers your baby. And the difference is that what midwifery tries to do is it aims for continuity of care. So it tries to aim that the person who has been taking care of you your whole pregnancy, uh, which usually is at least two midwives, if not sometimes a team of three, that at least one of those midwives is at the birth, is managing the birth, and is the one delivering the baby. Or at least the midwife who's involved in the care is present at the delivery. And what's really great about having a midwife somebody who's been involved from the beginning be present in delivery is they know your entire journey. They know your entire clinical picture. We know that mistakes sometimes happen with handover, with like passing the message on from people to people. Sometimes information can get lost. And when you have a consistent provider being present, there are less errors likely to happen, right? It's like, I'm going to know all your allergies off the bat. Like I'm not going to forget to tell myself that it's there. I'm going to know all the little nooks and crannies of all the little blips and bloops that have happened throughout your pregnancy journey. I'm going to remember that when I'm having, if I have to do a consultation or not, I'm going to remember what to look for, what not to look for. If somebody has to take over, because of course I'm not a robot and I can not be awake for more than 24 hours at a time. I, I also make sure that we give really good handover to the next midwife who's coming over or that second midwife who's coming is more than likely going to be a member of the care team. So they too already know that person's journey, that person's health history. And so I find that those are kind of two, those are some of the major differences between having an obstetrician and a midwife. Obstetricians also, their journey pretty much ends with after the baby's delivered, suturing needs to be done fine, but they don't continue to take care of the baby. They then let that role be handed off to the pediatrician. And so midwives are trained to take care of and be responsible for low risk and healthy newborns up until six weeks of age. And if they find any complications, we can refer out. So I guess those are the kind of the differences where there's a bit more of a finite boundary with the obstetrician. Midwives kind of have a greater span where we don't just end there, but we also continue care right across for the birth parent and for the baby into the postpartum period. Fantastic. Now, So we know to use a midwife, you need to be like a low risk pregnancy. How might I know if using a midwife is right for me? I think that there's always common misconception about who should get a midwife. Mm -hmm. And I'll just be blunt. Like there's this, some people have this idea that midwives are only for like middle-class white women. And that's far from the case. I know that there used to be a history, depending on where midwifery is and practice in your area of the world or your city, that there may be predominantly midwives who are white identified. But let's talk about the fact that indigenous midwifery, black midwifery, like those have been in existence for a very long period of time. Midwives work for everybody 
everybody and R for everybody. And depending on where you are, you can even find a midwife who has a shared cultural ethnic identity as you, if that's important to you to share care. Yeah, being low risk and having normal pregnancy, that is the main criteria for being able to be cared for by a midwife. We all know that life isn't a straight trajectory. And sometimes in that uh, process of caring, sometimes stuff can come up. And so that's when a midwife can do a consultation with an obstetrician. But most cases, the midwife, it's not a, a farewell, I'll never see you again. It's just, I'll be at your journey again at a different point instead. But yeah, I think pretty much as long as you want a midwife and a midwife's available, you can have a midwife. There's, and of course, you're low risk. Any popular myths and misconceptions that you didn't touch on? I think one of them, I think we talked about already, that midwives are not doulas. We're clinicians. We're healthcare providers. That's a big one, I think. A lot of people are like, oh, you're a doula. Nope, I'm definitely not a doula. (laughs) (laughs) Doulas do not have the same clinical responsibility as I do. And I don't know many doulas who want to have that kind of clinical responsibility. In terms of clinical responsibility, we are also care providers for healthy newborns of our patients, of our clients that we take care of. We very much are, are equipped and skilled to manage babies that come out of healthy people and who themselves are healthy. And we maintain that role. I think some people have this idea that, oh, just like an obstetrician, as soon as I give birth, I have to go find a pediatrician. And that's not the case. Midwives very much can manage that as well. And we'll be able to tell you if indeed you need a pediatrician or need to see a family doctor. Other misconceptions are who midwives are. I think there's an idea that midwives are middle-class white women. And that is not the case, especially not today in 2021. The the field of midwifery is very diverse in the province of Ontario. And around the world, like midwives come from all backgrounds, all countries, you can find a midwife pretty much anywhere, whether they're professionally trained or lay midwives, like midwives, it's one of the oldest professions in the world, and still one of the most, you know, valuable professions in the world, quite frankly, I'm trying to think if there's anything else really that can come. Well, I think you covered a few. For, like example, I sent a message to some of my friends and like, I'm interviewing a midwife. What questions do you have? And they were like, is it safe came up? You touched that already. Yeah. What else came up? The, the, that you're arriving with sage and knitting needles. No, you're not. Of course, they asked about training. Then somebody said, what happens if I decide I want an all natural home birth and then the pain kicks in and I change my mind? We just go to the hospital. <laughs> So that's another thing too, what I like about midwifery is that we have this kind of fluidity, right? Like I call us the, like the Swiss Army Knife of Obstetrics, where we're very much able to respond anywhere. And I think I jokingly say to people, like by the end of my training, like if you dropped me in the middle of a field and someone was delivering a baby, like I could do that. And I would very much feel comfortable managing that. Yeah. Midwifery is very much safe. If somebody's at a home birth and wants to move and has the pain kicks in and they just can't cope when they need an epidural, then we just move to the hospital. Mm -hmm. I'm a full scope midwife, meaning that my hospital allows me to practice no matter what's going on, except of course you need vacuum forceps or C-sections. I maintain care. Some hospitals, unfortunately, restrict midwives that if the the patient in question needs an epidural or needs oxytocin, that they require care be transferred to the obstetrician. And that's more about politics than anything else. But if you're very much at home and you're working with a full scope midwife and you want an epidural, we just go to the hospital and get an epidural. I think another misconception is that midwives don't support you know, births that require intervention, and that's not true at all. Midwives know when things are going abnormal and know that interventions are really great if they're put in a timely fashion. And so part of it as well is that we know like if this intervention is put in now, 
and it takes X time to work, we know that Y is going to happen. But if time passes, the ship is sailed, and we put this intervention in, we know it's not going to have the time we need it to work, and we can't change the course if we could have implemented it earlier. And one of those things would be even epidural. People have this idea that if I have a midwife, I can't have an epidural. I'm like, that's not true. I've an epidural is a tool, just like a hammer. And if you feel like I need an epidural or I, I can see some people, if they're tired, they're not coping well, they're freaking out. I tell them to get an epidural. People who have a history of trauma and have very much have a, are triggered by that sensation, I would tell them 100% get an epidural. And this is when you would want to get an epidural. We're very much about supporting client choice, patient choice. And I mean, that's even why I don't know if some people have picked up on one, the interchange I use between patient and, and client is that there is a sense of wanting to be advocating for somebody. Patients mean somebody who endures great suffering. And I think that's why midwives like to use the term client instead of patient. At the end of the day, it's just I'm here to serve somebody and I'm here to help somebody have a really good birth experience through whatever means I can, right? I don't have control over everything. I'm not God. But yeah, my goal is to make sure people have a good experience. And that means that you need to leave your home birth setting and go and get an epidural. Then by all means, that's what we're doing. And can you start the birth experience at the hospital as opposed to at home? Like you can pick which one you want to do it or do you have to start at home? No, you don't have to start at home. We always recommend to people to labor where they feel safe and they feel comfortable. And for most people, that's going to be the birth setting. The other piece to know is that you shouldn't go to the hospital at the very start. Unless, of course, you're having to have an induction or you're planning to have a C-section, you should actually only go to the hospital when you're in active labor. So when the contractions are coming like every four to five minutes, start to start, they're lasting at least 60 seconds. And that pattern has been going on for an hour. When you're in good active labor, that's when you show up. If you show up to the hospital too early, a lot of things can happen and none of them are great. One is, of course, you get sent back home because you're too early and shouldn't be at the hospital. The second one is that there's the, some hospitals believe in the admit and pit philosophy, which is like, well, you're already here. Let's start the oxytocin to just get you into labor. But the problem with intervention is that when you start adding interventions again at the wrong time, then you start getting yourself on the wheel where you can potentially end up in a C-section. So in terms of starting a labor, it should just always be at your home. As long as everything's low risk and normal, as everything's starting normal, just be in a place that you're comfortable. And then when you get into active labor and you wanted to be at the hospital, then you move to the hospital. A common misconception is for a lot of people is that the minute that you have the first contraction, the baby's going to show up five minutes later. And this is totally the fault of Hollywood, right? <laughs> I've had so many dads be like, oh my gosh, the water's broken. The baby's going to be coming right now. And I'm like, no, <laughs> that's not how this works out. And it's like, when I say four to five minutes and lasting a minute and it's an hour, even then that's too far apart. I always tell people that line so that there's time to pack up and move. There's time for me to go do a home assessment. There's time to still work. One of the contractions, we actually want the contractions to be every two to three minutes apart, lasting at least 60 seconds. And that's just going nonstop. That's ideal. Four to five, that's when there's time to like do an assessment, move, move to the hospital, whatever it is. So, but yeah, Hollywood has definitely made my job a lot harder. Hollywood and Dr. Google. Dr. Google is great. Don't we all love him? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Ruins a good night's sleep for everybody. You said that um, you can have the whole home set up like level one room. Yeah. Is there a requirement then that we have like a certain amount of space? I guess in the, when you come to do your 
visits with the patient over time, you'll know, okay, we have enough room to do this or we do not have enough room to do this. Yeah. Before Corona, back in the day, most of the visits I would do with people happen in the clinic where I work. If you're planning to have a home birth, then we do what we call a prenatal home visit. Sometimes we used to do just everybody at 37 weeks, we do a home visit because that way, if we need to do an assessment or whatever, uh, we know where to go. We know where to park. We know how to get there. We know how to get in. And that's in a very non-rush setting versus it's an emergency and I'm panicking trying to find somebody's home. And though usually at that visit, then I, and especially if somebody wants a home birth, I talk about, okay, this is the space. What do you want in the space? You want this, you want a birth tub, you want that. And then we pick out where we're going to go. I need to know where electrical outlets are going to be so I can plug in the suction or set up my oxygen tank. I need to have a firm surface that I can set up as a resuscitation area at home if I need to resuscitate a baby at home. And I have all the equipment to do that. I need an electrical outlet or two to get some of that stuff. Most of my stuff is battery power, just in case people panic. Like, what if the power goes out? It's like, what I need runs on, on batteries as well, so... Just don't freak out about that. And so, yeah, we'll figure out what kind of space. And babies don't need a lot of room to come out. You really don't. Like, usually people, like, think they need this massive house. And I'm like, we spend the most of the time in the bedroom, which is, like, a 10, 8 by 10 foot area. Like, you don't need that much space. Yeah, you'd be surprised. Babies can come out in some very, like, the back of a car kind of small, if you think about it. That is something we also learned from Hollywood. <laughs> yes. It, I mean, it happens like, but very sporadically. It happens very yeah. rarely that happens. And it doesn't happen on the first baby. Some of this is the second baby I've heard that happening. And it has happened to one of my patients, but like, it's very rare. But how can we establish a good relationship with our provider? And I even noticed that you touched on that client versus patient thing. Yeah. How can we build good relationships so that we feel comfortable with each other leading up to the day? Well, it's just like with anything, like it's two people and some people are just going to gel right away and some people are not going to gel right away. Mm-hmm. And it's about personalities, right? It's a fine, for some people, they like a very blunt style. They like a very like firm and upfront style. That's something that they very much appreciate in a care provider. And for some people, that's not what they want. So I think it's also knowing like what your provider is or who your provider is and knowing that your provider isn't a chameleon. So it's, you have to kind of also be like, okay, this is my provider. This is how they work. This is how they operate. And knowing I can't change them. Is that something that I want to work with? And I think that's the first thing. It's just like you're dating somebody. And I think also too, with the choosing of a good care provider, sometimes you also have to check your biases as well in terms of why you're going to say someone's a good provider or not. And I bring that up to say, because I know that this podcast will be listened to by everybody. And so I find also too, that when people talk about like complaining about a provider, sometimes you have to be careful about like, you know, would I talk about this female provider the way I talk about male provider or my expectations of a female care provider different from a male care provider or a person of color or the questions that I'm asking, like those things, you also have to do your own inward checking and internalize other things also too is just aside from the personality and checking in about that is also can they off the bat meet my needs like just picking any relationship right if it's that i want a partner who cooks me dinner every single evening and rubs my feet then you have to ask those questions like is that what you do now of course your providers aren't going to cook you and rub your feet but it's like do you need a longer appointment people with flexible hours or care providers who have appointments that go into the evening or it's really important to you that your care provider when they show up at your birth and who is most likely going to give that to you asking knowing what your needs are going into the relationship is really going to set you up for having a better relationship because you're going to know what your needs are. You're going to have a conversation with your care provider about what your expectations are. And then that gives your care provider an opportunity to respond and say, I can do this. I can do that. 
this is possible, that's not possible early on. And then you can figure out if this is going to be a good fit or not. And I think sometimes people just just bite the bullet and just pick anybody. And part of that's also is about accessibility and and uh, the availability of resources. Because in certain places, they, there are very few care providers available, and so you don't get to pick and choose. But if you're in an ability that you could pick and choose, then by all means, like have your list and ask your questions because that's going to help knowing that you've made the right choice as well. Because ultimately, it's always a choice about, for the most part, it's about choice about where you're going to go and who you're going to get. Sometimes it is, but where you do have choice, make sure you exercise that choice because that's going to be really helpful. And having a conversation and just knowing like, well, is this kind of the care provider that I can have this kind of conversation with? No, just like any relationship. It's like, you can kind of get a sense of like, this could probably go one of two ways or not or whatever it is. And I think just being also aware versus putting all the expectations on a care provider about like, I'm expecting you to be the perfect, you know, you know, clinician. It's like, we're still human beings. Like (laughs) we still have, we're still human beings. We still are people who can be cranky if we didn't get a good night's sleep or we didn't drink our coffee or we're hungry or, you know what I mean? I think that's another thing that people keep forgetting as well is that like clinicians are still human beings at the end of the day. I love that. I love how you laid that out. It's so perfect, I think. And I've never even thought about that, but yeah, make a list, decide what you want, decide what you're looking for and see if you can find that. I think sometimes we all just feel, well, I have to take what I can get. And sometimes you probably really do, but at least having that conversation would be helpful. Yeah, it does help. And I know also too, in terms of even being able to have the choice, there's some privilege that comes with that. Some people are just forced into a situation that there's no way out, but like whenever there can be a choice, that's important. And also it's important to know that if you have a complaint about a provider or concern, you should never ever be fearful that you're not going to get good care as a consequence because that's actually illegal. Like there's patient rights and patient responsibilities. And I always tell people that even if a patient doesn't meet all of their responsibilities, they're still entitled to all of their rights, right? You still are entitled to good care, good clinical care, and that should never ever be compromised just because you have, you feel like you were unfair by your clinic, your clinical care provider. That's really interesting. And how if at all possible, is that guaranteed? So you and I had a rough interaction and I guess yep. I filed with the ombudsman that I had this interaction with Shani and I'm just not happy. Yep. Aren't you going to find out? Before you get to the ombudsman or the college level, yep. have a conversation with the care provider and just say like that last interaction that we had, it was not a positive one or this is how I was left feeling. I think at the end of the day, like you just focus instead of like saying like you did this wrong or whatever, it's just like, after that last interaction, this is how I was left feeling. And this is why I was feeling that way. From this action, this is what it inside, this is what, what I was feeling inside. Mm-hmm. I think that a good care provider would be able to hear and acknowledge and validate how you're feeling. And then also figure out moving forward, how do we not repeat that? Because I think like any clinician, it's not just to, to the medical profession, first do no harm. Nobody wants to cause additional harm to people. Yeah. So knowing that I cause this harm in this way, whatever it may be, I think most good clinicians would want to rectify and to change and to make sure that they don't cause more harm in the future. It's a learning process, just like anything else. Yeah. Is there anything that people need to be aware of? especially when we think about advocating for ourselves in healthcare settings or anything like that. Is there anything else people need to be aware of, to be thinking about as they make these decisions about their care? Knowing what your needs are going to be mm-hmm. is really important. And then that way you need to advocate for. In terms of the prenatal health portion of it, 
I think really knowing what all the tests are, understanding what it means if you have a positive or negative result for certain tests, what that means, what that looks like, knowing that you have options not to do any of the tests. But of course, knowing that if you don't do the tests, this is you know information we may or may not have, and it makes hard to make good decisions on the road. I think in the birthing environment that it's really important that people know that they have the ability to consent or not consent to anything that's happening. I think people are always like mystified by this, but like you can literally, if you wanted to not consent to an episiotomy, like it's that simple. You could just say, I do not consent to episiotomy. Now, whether or not it's a great idea or not is this thing. At the end of the day, an episiotomy is an emergency procedure. And so you can really say, unless it's an emergency, when I say emergency, the way I was trained about doing episiotomies is they're only to be done in the case of an emergency and also to be done when the head is on the perineum, like the head is crowning. That's when an episiotomy is supposed to be done. Mm-hmm. If it's not being done there or as in the needing to use forceps or vacuum and it's clear that you need to do it, you don't need to do an episiotomy. And I've had people even in the case of vacuum or forceps decline an episiotomy because it's not necessarily always the case that it will. And it, it will depend on the clinical picture. I don't want people to take this clip and run with it, like right? <laughs> like a Mr. Killer song and be like, this midwife said that I can I'm declining this episiotomy and the OB is like clearly like the tissue is the issue and you need an episiotomy because I've cut only one in my career so far and but it was very clear that you needed to do it and it's very evident it's not supposed to be a standard issue but things like that it's like why do we need to do it or can we try without it and then do it if we need to those are things you can consent to you can consent to even not having a c-section if you don't want to it's major surgery I mean potentially there should be a could be a bad outcome but even that like nobody can force you to do anything you have consent for everything, but also it's really important to understand why it's being recommended, why you should be doing something or not doing something. And really under, being having somebody taking the time to explain that to you is something you should always advocate for. It's like, if you don't understand what's about to happen to your body, ask a question. And if someone makes you feel foolish for asking, get a second opinion. That's also something I recommend for people to do. And Shani, tell us really quickly what an episiotomy is in case someone doesn't know what that is. <laughs> Ah, an episiotomy is uh, a procedure where you use a scissors and you cut the perineum. So the perineum is the flesh, the fleshy bridge between the vaginal opening and the anus. And sometimes that in itself can restrict the baby from passing out very easily. And so sometimes clinicians, midwives or obstetricians or GPs, family doctors who do obstetrical care have to do an episiotomy. The most common episiotomy being done is called a mediolateral episiotomy. So basically like, let's say this is the opening of the vagina. Instead of going straight down, they go to the side. The reason why they don't want to go straight down is because we're always concerned about an extension, i.e. the cut that we make getting bigger and opening larger. And so if we put that right above your anus, the concerns it goes straight down to the anus, causing what we call a fourth degree tear. And so when we do it to the side, that puts all the pressure and sends it in a different way. And it kind of saves the patient from having that kind of like trauma to the to the anus and the rectum and stuff like that. So that's where the, the whole goal of it. And it's only supposed to be done in emergency. It's not supposed to be done with every single delivery, just to be clear. Any other nuggets, things you feel we should know in terms of reproductive health or anything else as we start to close? I think it's important for people to just really get curious about their bodies, learn about their bodies. 
I think because of how sexism has kind of played into like centuries of how women and girls and people just were raised, there's this kind of like uh, mystery that people have around the female body, not understanding how it works, not understanding how it can change and morph and revert back to its state. Like, I think people should just really kind of get into like biologically what's happening to me when I get pregnant, how I get pregnant, what's going on with my body. And I think that's just something people just really need to delve into. A lot of people didn't have to or didn't bother to pay attention in, in biology class or in sex ed, or if they even got access to sex ed. And I think it's really important to know your body, what's going on with your body, and knowing how the changes are happening in your body. And that way you can know what's normal and what's not normal, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of people, when they call me in a panic and it's like, oh my gosh, like this is happening. I'm like, but that was normal before. Like, it's interesting how people just think of the slightest twinge or this, like what's going on? I'm like, your body's changing. And like, just get interested in it, right? I remember this hilarious story. One of my friends said to me that they literally got a page from their, from one of their patients and the patient's like, my pee is yellow. <laughs> and they're like, <laughs> your pee yellow before you got pregnant? <laughs> it's like, yeah, it was. It's like, this is normal. And those are the kind of things where, you know, all of a sudden it's like the day before you find you're pregnant, like normal things are happening. You don't think about it. And then the next day you're pregnant. It's like, oh my gosh, is this normal? And in the, in the line of pregnancy, like, yeah, it's normal. And because I think people just don't know, there's this fear and they just, it's, it, but get curious about it and like read about it. And there's a lot of information out there on that. And I think also too, when it comes to reproductive health information, getting access to really good sources of health information is really important because misinformation is not just dangerous to the world as a whole, but you as an individual, because people will think like, I can do this, or I can't do that, or I could take this, I can't take that. And it's really important that you ask your care provider, where can I get access to good health information so I can educate myself on this topic? I think that's something that you can ask any care provider. The Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada, OntarioMidwives.ca, that's my association. They have a lot of information you can educate yourself with. There are lots of resources put out by Public Health Agency of Canada, CDC, WebMD, like really good sources. The National Institute of Health, like there are lots of really good information. And I know people have a lot of fear around government agencies because especially communities of color, marginalized communities, because of the harm that historically these organizations have done. I think we also have to recognize that those organizations for the most part have learned a lot of lessons and are starting to understand like it is important to change that past. And part of that is, is informing people about their bodies because that's what the harm was about is that things are being done to people's bodies and people didn't even know about it. And so what all of this change about in, in society is really about like, hey, like we think it's important for you to know about your body. So that way when harm is being done to you or not, or that right things are happening or not, just taking ownership, like you, this is your body and you need to be like, get the owner's manual, write the owner's manual, like figure out what's you know right for you or not for you. And just, yeah, really just holding that down is going to be really important because then that also translates into being a good parent. Like if you take ownership of your body, then you take ownership of your kid, you take ownership of the process. It's kind of a trickle down effect. Like you also take ownership of parenting your kid and feeling good about the choices that you're going to make to do that. I'm wondering, as I sit here, I think, what if someone's 35, like a full blown adult, and they're now starting to think about this, now really starting to embrace their body. And it's like, yeah, yeah, I totally missed all these things. 
Like I recently had a woman talk about the menstrual cycle and like cervical mucus and how some people don't even know that this is normal. Yeah. So now you're like, I'm not a kid anymore. How do I figure this all out? I can see it can be intimidating. <laughs> She's telling me about my body. How now? Now today's the perfect day. Yeah. <laughs> today's the perfect day. Like whether it's like you want to learn about the menstrual cycle, yeah. you want to get a mirror and just look down there and see what the heck is going on. Mm-hmm. You want to like, read a book about like how pregnancy works or cycle monitoring or whatever it mm-hmm. is. Like just get interested. Like the human body is pretty fascinating to me. And I think that's, yeah, that's from the time I've been a young kid, reproductive health in all areas and all aspects has been very interesting to me. Even around sex and sexuality, I think that's something that's also considered pretty taboo and people don't talk about it, but clearly people are doing it. I'm never going to be out of business. (laughs) Right. And so I think that's something that people also feel gun shy about or just be like, oh, I don't know. I should. I'm like, yeah, you should totally know what's happening with your body and every single aspect. Because when you know when things are going right, when things are going wrong, you also know very quickly when things are going wrong. So that's also really important as well. Do you have any fun patient stories or favorite stories from the field? (laughs) (laughs) I thought about this question. I was like, how do I even tell a story like this without like releasing patient identifiers? I'll give some advice after some recent uh, incidents I've had. Number one, if you're going to insert something inside of your vagina, please make sure that you tie a string around it so that you remember to take it out. I'll just leave that there. Mm -hmm. People (laughs) keep forgetting how the vagina can expand and accommodate. And as a consequence, it can get very cozy with things. And if you've inserted something, in this case, it was a garlic clove to improve their vaginal health, but they forgot to tie a string around it. And then it just sat there for a very undisclosed period of time. And then I found it later when I was doing an exam and I'm like, oh, this is, I was like, okay. <laughs> so tie a string around something. Other things would be also is that, oh, I will say one thing is that recognize that what happened to your sister's body, what happened to your best friend's body, what happened to your mom's body, your best friend's body is not what's going to happen to your body. I think another thing I've found commonly is that people panic and they're like, oh my gosh, my best friend just gave birth and we're the same height and the same age and all this kind of stuff. And like, it's bound to happen to me. And I'm like, no, cause that's not, no, that your body is always going to be different and your story is going to be different from your best friends, positive or negative, however you frame it. And so that's something I've also noticed too, and that people panic and they look to other people. It's like, and I hear people like, Oh, I've been listening to like birth stories to prepare for my birth. I'm like, no, that's not how you prepare. You don't listen you're going to freak yourself out (laughs) and just like you're should be like listening to your own body. Right. And I do say to people, talk to your mom and ask, how did they give birth to you? Right. Or whoever your birth parent is, try and get a a hold of their story and knowing like how their births were. Sometimes there's similarities in how it happens, but it doesn't always line up that way, but it's something that you can always just ask a question about. But just, yeah, getting deeper into your family history and just knowing even how you came to be on this planet can be something that's really useful for you. The garlic thing is really funny. (laughs) It's a common thing. A lot of people do it for like treating yeast infections or vaginal health. But I always tell people, please tie a string around it so that you remember. It's why a tampon has a string on it so that you remember. (laughs) <laughs> so is it harmful then? The garlic? Uh, the garlic? Yeah. No, it's not harmful. It but needs just to like, come out. It needs to come out. It needs out. to be there. Just like any foreign object. It's not meant to stay there for like weeks at a time. It's not, it's not meant to be there. 
Oh man, I totally <laughs> forgot my question. <laughs> Love that. I have a oh. very interesting job. I just put it that way. <laughs> um, I've read that lying on your back is not the most natural birth position. Which is the most common birth position that people normally give birth in? It depends, actually. So it depends on your body. So for some people, if they have what we call a narrow pubic arch, so the front of a person's um, body, the top part, that arch, that pubic arch, the front of the pelvis, if that's really narrow at the top, I actually recommend people do what we call stranded beetle. So when they're on their back and their legs are raised, because what that allows is that the baby can drop under the arch and scoot under a lot easier. So it really just depends. So I say to people, the best position to give birth is the position that allows the baby to pass through the easiest. For some people, that's going to be on their back with their legs up, stranded beetle style. For some people, it's going to be squatting position. For some people, it's going to be sideline position. Like it really just depends on what helps to bring the baby out. Because when you're pushing a baby out, of course, you want to use gravity to help you and stuff. But there are always going to be some points where some positions work better than others to at least start the process. And then when you get to a different position, you can switch position. But it's babies always keep me on my toes. Let's just put it that way. Very nice. (laughs) Any closing thoughts, Shani? I can't really think of many. I think we had a pretty good chat, but I think people want to know more about midwives, get in touch with the local association of midwives, wherever you are, find out about what midwives do or don't do in your community. Midwives are all trained health professionals and you can learn more about them. And also just making sure that you take care of yourself and you stay safe. What about you? What if people wanted to find you or if they were in the Toronto area and wanted to see if you could deliver their baby? Is there a way for people to get in touch with you? <laughs> yeah, it depends. If you're, we're booking nine months ahead, right? So like, yeah. as I jokingly tell the people, you like the, the running joke is you pee on the stick, you call the midwife, and then you tell your partner. <laughs> <laughs> it's because we book up pretty quickly. So I work specifically at the Midwives Collective of Toronto. It's located in downtown Toronto. I have privileges at Mount Sinai Hospital and also the Toronto Birth Centre and also I do home birth. If somebody wanted to have me deliver their baby, what they would need to do is to contact the Midwives Collective of Toronto. Midwivescollective.ca is the website. I think you can email info at midwivescollective.ca. That's one way you can get a hold of me. For a clinical work, that's what you would definitely need to do because the clinic has to book you. And then that way, we if I have availability, because like I said, I have a small roster and the reason of having a small roster allows me to provide that kind of personalized care. And so if I have availability and it's, it, it, the timing works out, it works out. I always tell people also, like, especially my repeat clients, it's like, if you're planning to have a baby and you want me to, you know, deliver that baby, you actually need to call the clinic and ask what my vacation is because I don't obviously take people when I'm on vacation. <laughs> so that's also something, if, if it's really important to you, you need to figure out nine months from now, is Shani on vacation or not? Time your pregnancy accordingly. Time your pregnancy. <laughs> Exactly. I always tell people that you got to time it because I, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Well, thank you so much for coming to the Good Health Cafe, Shani. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, Nikita. Thanks for having me. I hope you learned a few new things during the episode. I certainly did. If you enjoyed it, please share the episode with a friend. Sharing is caring. And if you haven't already, feel free to subscribe to our mailing list on thegoodhealthcafe.com so that you can be alerted when new episodes or blogs are posted. See you in the cafe next time. Bye!